Greetings and a warm welcome back to Inner Sections, where our aspiration is to help us explore what is, what is the highest potential, the highest potential for you and for me, for us individually and collectively to flourish in our relationships, to pursue, to pursue happiness to its ultimate extent, to strive to be able to excel and be our best in everything we do and to also foster sustainably good, good health. And in that quest for the highest potential, our aspiration is to dissolve those boundaries, dissolve the boundaries between life and leadership, between inner and outer, between science and spirituality, between East and West, between profit and purpose, between materialism and mysticism. Because it is when we dissolve those boundaries that we just never know what emerges as new possibilities. And what a wonderful opportunity we have today to not just dissolve those boundaries, but actually break and shatter many of those boundaries with the guest that we have for our show today. And I'm just so thrilled and honored to have in our midst. I'm going to introduce him in just a moment with um, really, in many ways, a titan in our midst, someone who has really shown possibilities where you and I and some of us may have thought things were impossible. I can't think of a better way of introducing Mick than through the lens of Mick and his audience themselves. And so I'm going to invite my colleague to play a short little video to help you get introduced to Mick and then invite him live on the show. So now what's your victory going to be? What's the story that your kids are going to tell about you? Every single thing that we can touch today was impossible at one point. This whole concept of impossible is a fallacy. You know, we're going to change the script. We're going to change this thing. If you see something that's absurd, that has to change, that you commit, then you figure out how you're going to pull it off. You don't have to have the experience or the credentials. You just have to say, that's wrong. We got to change it. And I cannot tell you what a powerful way that is to operate. Who's that one person? If we help that one person, then maybe it could be the spark that lights the fire that helps many. And that's what we've proven to do. The artist's name is Tony Temp Kwan, and he has ALS. And there was one story in particular about this boy named Daniel. He heard the bombs, there was no place to run. He went and he wrapped his arms around a tree. And when the bomb went off, the tree protected his body, but it blew his arms off. But what did we do? We committed to something and great things happen when you commit. What's absurd? What needs to change on this planet? I said, all right, here's what we're gonna do. Re-engineer it, modify it. Usually there's some duct tape and zip ties involved. Our mission is to change the world through technology and story. How did we pull it off and why did we pull it off? We found our one. Everything we approach, we approach from this beautiful, limitless naivete. We don't know that we're not supposed to do it. We decide what must happen. This must happen. So we've hacked together a way now that allows the deaf with wristbands, ankle bands, and a vibrating vest to have music signals sent to the body. That vibrates the music signal so now they can experience music. Name anything that's possible today that was not impossible first. You guys are the ones that every single day are gonna take things from impossible to possible. And even if you just move that dial just a little tiny bit, you're gonna give everybody else in this whole place, this whole country, this whole planet, permission to take it a little further. All right, so if we could go this side, help one. This side, help many. And so let us now welcome Mick into our midst. 
Mick, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. That video reminded me of the world that it used to be when you actually could be in front of people face to face. Remember that? <laughs> That's true. That's true. One day we will recapture that because yeah. although it looks impossible with uh, with your spirit, I'm sure there are some people out there finding those solutions for us. That was pretty amazing the way the um, scientific community came together to bring some vaccine in record time, isn't it? That's kind of an example of your impossible being made possible. It really is. It, it really shows, I think, the power of what happens when people are unified around a common purpose and common goal. I love that theme of people being unified at a time like this when there are so many otherwise divisions being sowed where even even within families, right? People are at times not in a position to talk to each other because of certain social or political differences. And your work is is just so uplifting because I can't I can't imagine a single person on either side of the aisle not being like drawn to wanting to invest in causes like this. I, I, I love that you're leading with politics on this because it's something that I find I find politics, I find racism, I find so many of these things just ridiculous, right? That we can spend so much time focusing on things that are, and, and I don't mean this as an insult, but are just meaningless, right? Like, does it really matter that you don't look like me? Does it really matter that you think one way and I think another? What really matters is, and, and this is something at the end of the day, if you put a newborn baby into the hands of someone who thinks exactly the opposite of you in whatever it might be, there's still that kind of the humanity of holding that being, that thing that emanates energy that, that transcends opinion. And I think that's really the quest that we have, you know, on this planet is to try to regain that, I guess, that kind of the origin of who we are, which is just the appreciation of one another as human beings. And the problem is we all grow older and we, we have things that happen to us and we start to make those things that happen to us mean something and we get influenced by outside sources. And I think it's, uh, it, it goes back to, you know, the, that innocence that we have as a child and is, is so pure. And I think it's, I think our entire life we're meant to try to recapture that innocence and that belief and that optimism. I, um, I find that beautiful. I'm often striving to within the uh, MBA and corporate kind of worlds to um, infuse the possibilities of love being an energy that that we can we can all embrace in, in sort of an unconditional universal kind of way, which in your case, I mean, I, I'm just teaching it, you're doing it, you're living it. And I sometimes so I love your kind of metaphor of, of, of the child in your arms, you know, and I, I think that's one that I, I may borrow from you and use um, one one that I've used, which comes from your industry, the one that you were excelling at so much uh, before you've taken on this even broader social cause with Not Impossible Labs. Uh, from the movie industry is that I, I just invite people to to think about the fact that do you watch movies and if you watch movies do you laugh and cry sometimes when good oh things my happen God. bad things happen and what does that show about the human condition's ability to connect yeah it's funny is uh, so pre-March 2020 I used to travel all the time go around and talking about the work I do with Not Impossible and um, I, I got I was fascinated with the fact that I would cry like a baby on planes watching movies. And sometimes the movies were not cryable movies. Like I'm not, it'd be one thing that if it was a real tearjerker, but I would think, why am I doing this? And I actually kind of enjoyed it. And I mean, I actually did a little bit of research. There was a lot of psychological and psychology theses about the fact that when you're enclosed in a capsule 
and you're very vulnerable and the your life your, and, and your the power that you have over your life has been put in the hands of somebody else and you're sitting next to people that it, it elicits a kind of a, a more emotional response mm -hmm. uh, which explained a lot to me because I'm, I'm crying like a baby when watching Remember the Titans. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I've also wondered if, uh, you know, what happens there is that we sort of like get very focused on that person's story, whichever is playing out in front of us in the movie. We, we pay attention, which we often don't do in daily life. And we do it without judgment, right? Like th there's no like, I'm standing here in judgment of your character or who you are. I, I, just, I just want to hear your story. And in hearing somebody's story, amazing things happen. Yeah. And yeah. listening and, and the, the art of listening, which I think we can all improve upon that. It's, it's so hard for us to quiet our voice. You ask me where I'm from and I say, oh, I'm from Los Angeles. And typically the first thought is from the person on the other side asking that is they're going to say, oh, I'm from Los Angeles. So it goes back to their story or, oh, really? I'm from wherever. And it goes back to their story. Like imagine if our default was, oh, really? Tell me about what it was like living in Los Angeles. If we defaulted to being inquisitive about the other person and actually trying to, to draw learning and perspective from that other person. But I think as a, it's our knee-jerk response as a human to constantly want to relate it back to us. We, I think inherently we're loving creatures and we are inquisitive creatures, but we're also insecure and, and somewhat selfish creatures where we, we try to figure out how this relates to us. And I think that's part of one of our journeys in life is to try to figure out how, I think, to deflect that so that we can really learn from other people. Thank you, Meg. I mean, in addition to all the wonderful things you're doing, this capacity to be able to step back from that doing and analyze the instincts and the habits of thought and speech and action that make you who you are and then be able to teach those, you know, I think is a wonderful gift. And, and one, you know, we could see in action a little bit in some of those videos that we saw of your speaking uh, circuit moments. But, but that's something we really value in this, in this intersections community. And you've just given us something very, very learnable here. This idea that, yeah, just in asking those questions, stay, stay with that for a while. Stay in that state of curiosity, yeah. probe deeper. You talked about listening. And um, I remember this. By, by the way, I just, I just want to make sure I said that. I'm not necessarily good at that, right? It's easy for me to say and have a conversation with you about that. But to be actually, to execute that is do, do what I say, not always what I do. Yeah, yeah, I appreciate that. It reminds me of uh, a moment where Oprah Winfrey once asked uh, Nelson Mandela, she said, how do you feel about the fact that people consider you a saint? You're this uh, amazingly larger than life figure with all the noble things you've done. And he said, I'm not a saint. Unless you think of a saint as a sinner who never gives up. That, so, I love that. That's yeah, great. That's yeah. great. So, so I, I see that humility in, in, in what you just shared with us as well. You, you, you spoke about listening, Mick. I want to come back and talk about that theme with you when you share with us the story of you and Daniel. Because I saw in that moment in that story something so powerful about how you listened. But then not just how you listened on the outside, how you listened on the inside to the stirring it caused within you. Let's come back to that because I think that would be a beautiful story to share. Uh, before we get there, just one, one uh, quick sort of like thing that I'm very curious about that I don't know actually about your life story, which is you were excelling at your game. You were living the good life in a fairly glamorous industry of, of, of Hollywood, producing you know incredible animation and visual effects and design work and getting one company to be really successful, then starting another one, being part of some really signature movies that were out there. And now you're living the life that you're living now. And, and what got you to make that pivot and pull away from that limelight to go in a wholly different direction. I truly believe that life is a serendipitous and accidental journey and that you have to embrace 
that that path and 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 expect those right turns and those surprises that that come up and then be able to react appropriately and as you said i i had a successful production company and things were going great we were at the top of our game offices all over the world working with just incredibly brilliant creative people and then an accident happened. A friend of mine hijacked a date night that my wife and I were going to go on and took us to a gallery event, exposed us to this artist who had ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease. And that led to the creation of, you know, through the course of, of a lot of a, a very kind of intricate and interesting journey led us to the creation of a device that would allow him to be able to, to communicate and to specifically to draw again using only his eyes. And that is the creation of this, the iWriter. I can't tell you how many roadblocks we ran into along the way. I can't tell you how unqualified we were to actually create that. I can't tell you, there's no reason that we were supposed to be able to pull that off, but for the fact that there was something about my connection with this artist named Tony Tempt Kwan that was just... It, over, it overcame any of the reasons why it shouldn't be done. And it actually was that process of the creation of the iWriter was the origin of Not Impossible. We created this thing, we created this thing that shouldn't have been done and it worked. It was this incredible moment where it worked and he was able to draw again. And then we went home afterwards after this wonderful night where everybody saw this thing and, and it worked. And then we woke up, you know, we, I always joke that we woke up the next day and it was Time Magazine's top 50 inventions of the year. All of this press and accolades started coming in. It's now part of permanent collection at the MoMA, TED Talks. And there was such a momentum behind it that we just kind of looked around and went, what the heck is happening right now? Like there, there, was, there was an uncontrollable momentum that we had no role in, in fostering and, and causing. And that realization that we could use technology, what we call technology for the sake of humanity, this capturing technology and turning it into something that accomplishes and achieves and overcomes an absurdity, that basically, that's the premise of, of Not Impossible. And that was the origin story of, of how Not Impossible got started. There's something so instructive about what you just shared. You know, we're all looking for a purpose. We're all looking at trying to figure out what we want to be when, when we grow up. I mean, I, I, I've been on that quest for for you know, for a while until I finally found it for myself too, the the blessing of a higher power, you know, about ten odd years ago. But what I see in your story is how it can be sparked unexpectedly, just in a certain random moment that you had no idea like it was coming your way. And also when it gets sparked, maybe all you want to do is take that first step, which is what you did, and you just never know what it's gonna to lead to, what doorways of insight is gonna open mm -hmm. with the outside, because it doesn't look like you had this big grand top-down vision. It's just that you did something which led to something. And then ultimately, gradually, it seems like the, the vision for Not Impossible Labs has emerged at the right time. And now perhaps you can look back and feel like it sounds also organized and well thought through. But it was an evolution. Is that right? One of the favorite sayings that I have or that I, that I, I laugh at every time it's said is if you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. And I believe, and, I, and I'm still grappling with how to articulate this. So forgive me if I, if I kind of step on myself a little bit, but I truly believe in setting goals. 
I truly believe in having aspirations. I truly believe in, in, in working towards accomplishing those goals. But I also, which is in conflict of what I've just said, I also truly believe in knowing that sometimes it's not going to happen the way that you think it's going to happen. And that embracing that spontaneity and embracing the right churn or the roadblock is actually a good thing. And it's more about, I think, the, 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 the pursuit and the persistence towards the final outcome than it is being so driven on the journey or the pathway that you think is the right particular pathway or journey. And so there's, it's funny, I've been grappling with how to articulate this, this sense of goal-driven direction and almost an injection, like a, a seasoning of nihilism, you know, which how do you, how do you grapple with that? That concept of the fact that we as emotional, responsive, reactionary creatures, how do you how do you craft that in a way that still accomplishes great things while, while in this brief time that you're here on the planet? Yeah, it's beautiful. I mean, there is something in the spiritual traditions of the world. I mean, I come from I come from India, and there, you know, one of the beloved scriptures is the, the Gita, and one of the messages of the Gita, which I think is quite consistent with. Um, what I've heard from theologians and other faiths as well is this notion of non-attachment to outcome means that you sow the seeds and you do your best to tune in and to do what you think is right based on whatever that inner voice is telling you and the guidance you're getting. But then you don't actually have rights to the fruits of your labor, you know, and, and that's something which will emerge at the appropriate time, the right way. And, and you just have to kind of be able to operate with a sense of almost like liberation from that attachment to like how, how much I've been able to achieve today or tomorrow. I'm seeing a little bit of that in what you've said, right? That that there is, you, you do your goal setting, but then you have to be able to just sort of like go with the flow. Is, is that right? And, and just see things emerge and then adapt to them as they're coming. Yeah. And I think that there is a, one of the things that really drives us here is this concept of egoless innovation, right? And egoless collaboration. And I think that we and our journey of as humans, we're, we're collaborating, whether we like it or not, we're collaborating all the time, just by going to the coffee shop and grabbing a coffee, we're collaborating with that person to get a coffee. And we, when you realize that how you react, I think, is equally as important as to as the intention of why you're doing something, it puts us in a in a pretty amazing position of, of power. And it's why, quite frankly, I think it's why I love the fact that my pre-life to Not Impossible was one of as, as a producer. And our job as a producer is just to react and solve and react and solve and react and solve. So that was a muscle that I got to work out a lot prior to Not Impossible. And quite frankly, was the reason why I think Not Impossible is what it is today, is that that's kind of baked into our culture as to how do you react in the most intentional and powerful and purpose-driven way that also allows for spontaneity? Because that's, I think, where a lot of beauty in life lies. Wonderful. I, you've got so many powerful, both lessons, but also stories. And we've been focusing more on the lessons, but let's get to a couple of the stories because I know they will be so enriching for our audience as well. And so can you talk about sort of what happened after the Tony moment? You know, you took on this beautiful cause, you got to a real incredible breakthrough. It got great recognition out there. You started to see this as maybe something which was more enduring than just, just that one beautiful first act. And, and then you met Daniel. Yeah. 
So yeah, Project Daniel is. So I was out to dinner with, we had made the decision to start Not Impossible Labs. And that was a result of the fact that I got an email. I was thinking about it and sleeping on it and meditating and praying about whether or not I should use this discovery of using technology to try and help people and try to solve absurdities. And I made the decision, no, I'm not going to do this. This is not, you know, I'm going to stick with my day job. I'm going to stick with my company. Things were going great. And almost the, the moment I made that decision, I got an email from the artist and the artist said, that was the first time I'd drawn anything for seven years. I feel like I've been held underwater and someone finally reached down and pulled my head up so I could take a breath. And that was this moment of like, well, looks like I don't have a choice anymore. Like, how, do you, how, do you, how do you say, no, I'm not going to do it after you get an email like that? So that was the start of Non-Impossible Labs. And then that began this exploration of, of what is Non-Impossible Labs? How do we make it sustainable? Because I wasn't, I don't believe in this concept that doing good is relegated to a tax code, right? Like people think, Oh, I'm going to do good. I need to start a nonprofit. I'm going to do good. I'm going to go work for a big charity. I believe that we need to bake in this concept of doing good for the world into everything that we do. And so that was one of the kind of the things that I set out to do with Non-Impossible Labs. And in this exploration, I met a friend of mine for dinner, and he told me about this doctor named Dr. Tom Katana who is this brilliant doctor um, who I found out afterwards, I went home that night and researched him, who was based in the Nuba Mountains. And he is, he was a missionary doctor who, he's the only guy within a 1500 mile radius in this little ribbon of mountains between Sudan and South Sudan. And his story of the people that he helped was really inspiring, but he talked about one particular situation where he had to save a young boy's life because he was, uh, there were so many amputations that were taking place that he had to perform. And this story was like, wait a second, why is this guy performing so many amputations? Because he hated having to do these things. And the reason was, is that the current reigning president of the time was President Omar Bashir, who, for context, the people you know that are watching right now, if you don't know that name, he's the guy uh, who, was, who brought you the atrocity of Darfur, the genocide of Darfur. And so he was regularly running this campaign of terror over the people of the Nuba Mountains. And what he would do is he would have his cargo planes roll 55-gallon drums filled with jet fuel and shrapnel out of the back of the planes. These things would hit the ground like giant Molotov cocktails and spray shrapnel everywhere. And that's what would kill people or maim people. And there was this story of this that in this article that I was reading about Dr. Tom of this young boy named Daniel who was out tending his family's goats and cows in the middle of this open field. He heard the bombers come as they come every day and he had no place to run, no place to hide, no foxholes to jump into because they have foxholes everywhere because the bombings are so regular. And he saw a tree, this lone tree, and he went and got behind the tree and he wrapped his arms around the tree and the bomb went off not far from where he was and because his body was behind the tree, his body was protected from the blast, but because his arms were on the other side, it blew off his arms. And the image that you're seeing right now is the image that I saw as I was scrolling through this article about Dr. Tom. And that image combined with the fact that when this, this boy named Daniel, this 12-year-old boy, woke up, the first thing he said was, if I could die, I would, because now I'm going to be such a burden to my family. And that was just... I didn't know how to process that. How does a 12-year-old boy, one, become a double amputee, never be able to throw a ball or play or dress himself or feed himself again? 
But his first reaction is, I wish I could die because I don't want to be a pain to my mom and dad. And so that was just this moment, which is similar to what we did with the iRider. Uh, this mantra that we have is that when you see something that's absurd, something that you say, this has to change. I can't stand for this. I can't just look away and go about my life. We call it commit and then figure it out. And that's what we did on the iRider. And then this is, this is what we did with Project Daniel is that I said, I don't, I don't know what, I don't know how, but I got to do something. And so we repeated the, the, what we did with the iRider, which is we invited all these brilliant people into our house. We started to hack and program and create. And then in the end, this happened. Mick, um, you clearly have an enormous heart. And sometimes when I interact with people who are also very heart-based, I find that they struggle a little bit with the burdens they take on from the world around them. And how do you deal with that when, you, when you're not just a good outer listener, but you're also a good inner listener, where you're listening to the stirrings of your heart in a moment like that with Daniel, because you're feeling, you're feeling his pain within and, and you want to do something about it. Given the scale and diversity of just like challenges in the world, how do you allow yourself to be able to lean in on some of them and still protect your heart, still be able to have the energy to do the good work without, without feeling that, that heaviness and that burden, which sometimes those with a sensitive heart get, uh, get to struggle with? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. Um, the, the saying, it's better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all. I think that that, um, that concept of protecting your heart I don't know if you should protect it. I think that wouldn't it be a great thing to to finish your life with is that that you you loved and you tried without without editorial, without uh, restraint. That as opposed to trying to 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 maintain it. Now, okay, I say that, and that's wonderful. That sounds very inspiring and grandiose. But let's talk about the practicalities of that. I think that to to actually do that. I believe that it's the the act that you put forth in trying to exhibit love or to try and, and attempt to try to help people. And I think that's one of the things that we try to do at Non Impossible is that we know that we can't help everybody, but that's why we use story as a vehicle to scale those that we that we do try to help. And we do that through the telling of the stories of the people that we are trying to, to help through our Not Impossible initiatives. And we also have launched a program a couple of years back called Not Impossible by Others. And it's about celebrating other people who are living the non-impossible life and, and have a non-impossible mindset and, and are trying to use technology for the sake of humanity, which is one of our things that we do. And so, um, and it's funny because I actually just looked at the, at the feed and, and one of our award winners from this year is a, a brilliant and passionate gentleman by the name of Subhasis Banerjee. And he is one of the award winners this year for a, a thing that he did called Symphony. And you, so you should go to, go to our website. I won't, I won't take up too much time now, but go to our website and you can see his story. But this is one of those things that I believe that are you worse or better off from not being vulnerable? from not exhibiting love. Something that is, I will take to my grave is, and this is one of those things that it was just a moment in time. It was just a brief moment in time. But years back, I was in New York City and 
I was, you know, running about as you do in New York City, and I had a meeting here and a meeting there, and I'm very important, and I'm, you know, I'm on a conference call, and I'm playing this role of adults as we do, as we're, things are very important, very serious. And I'm walking down the street on a call, and I walked by, and I remember I looked over to my left, and against a building, there was a gentleman, a homeless gentleman, who was clad in, in very old and ragged clothes, and he had bags over his feet for shoes. And it wasn't winter, winter, but it was still cold. And I remember I was on a call and I looked over and I saw him and our eyes connected. And then I was walking. So boom, I lost his eyes and I kept walking. And I was on the call and I got about two blocks down and I just, I couldn't deal with it anymore. I couldn't get his his image of his of his face out of my head. And so I think I pretended to get disconnected from the call. I think I just was, I, I just, just hung up. And I went back to, I made the decision. I want to go try and, and, and just connect with him and, and try to maybe just go get him a sandwich or get him some food. Cause hunger is a, is a, is something I'm very passionate about. And I can talk a little bit about that later. And, um, so I went back. And he was gone, right? And I, it might have been, I don't know, five minutes total from the time walking forward and then turning around and walking back and he was gone. And that inability for me to go back and simply hand someone a sandwich that I had, I, it, it taken me too long to make the realization that I should do something has always haunted me in a very powerful way that reminds me that if you see something that needs to change, if you see someone that needs help, the time to do it is now. Like you need to do it now, not wait and ruminate and think and process and dissect and strategize. It's, it's you need to exhibit that help or that assistance or that love, as you said, now. And so that really informs, I think, a lot of the way that I, I think about what we do and how we do is that, and this is actually one of our core values at Not Impossible, is impatience. Impatience is one of our core values because if we are all impatient about the work and the good that needs to happen in the world, Imagine what can happen if we all shared that that common trait of impatience. So that's beautiful. There are a couple of things you've said there that I want to unpack for the benefit of our our audience, which is um, you talked about how you lean into that moment, you do it with impatience in the sense of urgency of now. And then while it is true that you may not be able to do that for every perhaps like needy brother or sister in humanity that there is this other vehicle that you've created through which to propagate this ideal out there and bring others into the movement, even those that are doing good work on their own initiative without necessarily taking resources from you. And I, I really like that because, you know, I, I'm drawn to studying some of the great reformers and nation builders and innovators in history. And, and one of the things I see with them is kind of what you've said, which is there's a qualitative and then there's a quantitative. The qualitative is what they're able to do themselves. But then on the quantitative, there is some ideal they put out there. There's some example they put out there. There's some model that they put out there, maybe some lived principles, et cetera, that they put out there, which others then absorb into their own ethos and into their own DNA. And so they have this larger impact more indirectly at times through just like what they're putting out there. And I think in your case, Mick, uh, there are a few things that you're putting out there. One is like, guys, you can be super successful in what you're doing in more of the mainstream capitalist system, but you can also spread your wings and go and do beautiful other things beyond. And that's that's a great example that you're setting. Then the other one is this notion of this universal expansive heart, which is amazing, which is amazing, right? And, and we are seeing that here. And by the way, you have cast such a wide net, you know, for all of humanity that I am feeling a great sense of joy 
that we are bringing in a little bit of a global family here for you today, right? To listen to you. So, so Mick, the other part of the, I think what we can learn from you, which I'd really like to dissect for a few minutes, is the not impossible part, right? Like, like, like sometimes these causes look like, oh, but you know, other people have probably attacked this issue. There are experts out there who probably know more about this than I do. What, you know, what can I add, you know, to this mix? And and you've taken on some of these causes, which supposedly, I mean, you said that. Daniel's story that you said $15,000 for a typical prosthetic and, and you brought it down to $100. Who would have even thought that was possible? How do you get yourself and your team into that state when like nothing is impossible? All right. So everybody, I'm sure, can appreciate logic, can appreciate history, can appreciate data, can appreciate science, right? So let's talk about the science of impossible. Everything that surrounds you. If everybody right now looks to their left, looks to their right, looks up, looks down, think about the things you can touch, that you can taste, that you can feel. Everything that surrounds us at one point wasn't possible. Think about that. The computer screen that you're looking at, the phone that you're texting on, the the spoon that you're eating your, your morning cereal with, the glass that you bought at the store, that you're drinking your coffee out of or your tea, every single thing that surrounds us at one point was impossible. The most mundane to the most complex. So if you think about inverse logic and you think about the progression of history as an indices of how we will continue to evolve as a species, then doesn't that also mean that if everything that is possible today was impossible first, that everything that is impossible today, if you base it on stats, if you base it on history, if you base it on science, if you base it on everything that we've seen throughout the history of our species, that everything that is impossible today is on the trajectory of going from impossible to possible. It's just the natural progression of things. So you can talk about something that right now, what we're doing right now 20 years ago was like burn at the stake witchcraft, right? Like that's like, what? There's no way you can do that. There's no, there's no feasible way that that could be done. That's crazy, right? Well, so then what about teleportation? What about robotic surgeries? What about, like, think of the things that you're like, wait, what? It's just a natural progression of the way we evolve as a species. And we have to get out of the way of thinking that in, in this constraint of time, that these things are going to be possible. Maybe not in our lifetime. Maybe not in the next generation's lifetime. Maybe it's a couple generations. But do we really feel that we're so narcissistic and so self-centered that when we encounter something that's impossible now, that we feel like, oh, that's going to be impossible forever. There's no way that that's ever going to change. No. So when you kind of grasp it with that perspective, then you see yourself as a pawn, as a player, as an advocate, as a as a, as a catalyst towards making that progression. And part of that progression is the effort and the exertion of energy towards trying to progress things from impossible to possible. And maybe that little exertion of energy in February 2021, that that's going to have an effect 5, 10, 50 years from now because there's something that you will do to do that. So for us, back to your question, once you grasp that, you see yourself in this both powerful and humble light as this is my role while I'm here in this very tiny, tiny amount of time on this planet. This is my role to try to catalyze and try to push things 
things forward. And that's what we try to do here. We tackle things with this exertion of energy of like, this is our role. This is our job to do this. And if this inspires someone else to do something or inspires someone else to have an idea, then we win. Everybody wins towards, towards that effort. Make that is such an incredible learning that I think that's all we take away from this conversation with you today and put it into action in our own unique situations. Uh, it would be transformative for everyone you know listening to the show. I, I want to I want to quote you. You've said at one point to build on what you've just like offered us here that we enter every absurdity that we are solving, every impossibility that we are trying to make not impossible, truly with no clue on how we are going to solve it. That that yeah. that's that's powerful. No degree, no diplomas or credentials that entitle us to actually like be able to address this issue we say that the credentials for someone who is a not impossible team member are two one is you have to breathe air and the other is you have to pump blood and if you have these two things and the belief that it can be solved that you're you know you're going to like be able to play a role at solving it and, and and those are the credentials you need i mean wow how empowering how how amazing i mean and, and yeah anyway that's you know thank you for what you're bringing to the world that way and uh and make but how do you ultimately make the impossible possible you dream the impossible you embrace the impossible you pursue the impossible there's got to be more to you, the secrets of your code that ultimately build that bridge between the impossibility of today to the possibility of tomorrow i i, I mentioned that there's this egoless approach that we have towards solving the problems that we tackle and we believe in the convening of brilliant minds and we believe that brilliance is, is abundance, right? It doesn't necessarily, brilliance is not classified to the initials that you put behind your name. Degrees, diplomas, credentials can inform you, can enhance your perspective, can propel your a solution, but it is not the only solution. And if those degrees or diplomas and credentials act as means to curtail or to you know, put down other new original ideas, then you get voted off the island in, in the not impossible world. So we love to convene minds of, of brilliant thinkers. We call them misfit geniuses and mad scientists. And that ranges from, from people who are truly credentialed experts to people who are completely tangential in terms of their thinking. But when you combine that that mixture, then you create that that potion and that that stew of, of passionate, brilliant minds. That's what leads leads to, to things being able to be accomplished. And we believe that passion and conviction surpasses intelligence or training any day of the week because you can source now we have an abundance of, of knowledge at our fingertips called the called the internet. We can go source the the, pragma, the the pragmatism and the the practicality that we might need but that passion and and thought and 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 unique perspective on how to change that or adopt that or modify that that's what that's what we really look for so that's i think for us how we go about doing what we do is is about convening those brilliant minds and then this is a reoccurring you know theme to how we do it we always keep that one person in mind and that's that that help one help many mentality is that when you when you focus the mission on helping one person and then it 
quantifies everything down. It gives us a clear benchmark. It gives us a clear North Star for everyone to focus their energy on. And the other thing it does is back to the ego list that, that I led with in this, this, in this um, conversation. Our own personal agendas are easy to get to seep into uh, the conversation. Except, and but, if there is a North Star of a human being on the other side that, that kind of removes that, that, that noise, because it's not about you being right. It's about helping that one other person. So help one help many for us begins this journey of focus on how do we solve for one? How do we really make it work for one? But then in solving for one and then telling the story powerfully about that one person, because story is such a a critical component of how we operate at Not Impossible. That's what lends to many people being able to be helped. Yeah. Even while you're charging us with something that uh, will put many of us out of our comfort zones and uh, pursue something vastly beyond perhaps what some of us may have done, it seems to come from a very fluid and a natural place for you. Have you had to like confront like fear of failure? You know, have you know what would like failure look like for you? And and have there been moments in this journey where you've uh, seen certain yourself hit certain constraints, inner constraints, outer constraints, and kind of had to had to work out on some of those gaps? Sure. Failure. I love the conversation about failure because failure, just in the mere word, has this this connotation of not achieving of not living up to not accomplishing. And for us, failure is something that we celebrate. Failure is something that we feel is so important to the journey of solving something. It's failure is integral to the process of creation. And so actually in my book, there is a chapter that is dedicated to this concept. And the chapter is fail, 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 succeed, repeat as necessary. And that for us is when we experience failure, let's, and let's talk about two things. Let's talk about fear and let's talk about failure. So let's talk about failure first. When we experience failure, we feel that like, okay, great. This is fantastic. We're one step closer to what's going to be solved because we know that there is a finite amount of failures that we can accomplish that will start to get us to that core solution of what that might be. And so we celebrate, oh, we failed. Okay, good. What did we learn from that next? Oh, we failed again. What did we learn from that? Oh, we failed. And then that assembly of all those different learning points that that are a result of failure, that's what leads us to our final results. And everyone has heard this anecdote, you know, about how many light bulbs or how many failures were happened before the light bulb was invented. But it's really true. You if you see failure as a as a part of the journey, as a mile marker in terms of the race, then then that's a whole different perspective. The other thing about failure is that I really encourage corporations, I encourage large scale organizations to institute a celebration celebration of failure, have an award show for failure, have recognition and acknowledgement and praise around failure, and not just the failure, but the learnings around those failures. Why is that? Because that's how you instigate an innovative culture. When people realize, oh, it's not about not failing and succeeding, it's about succeeding and the journey to get to that success is what's going to lead to it. So it's it's really funny when I'm, when I'm having conversations with CEOs and I say, so do you guys give awards? 
kids every year? Yes. And do you celebrate them? Yes. And are there, is there prizes or trips or whatever? Yes. Great. What if you did that for the best failures? And people go, whoa, whoa, holy cow. That's didn't think about it that way. But people grasp the fact that you have to, you have to embrace failure to get there. And then the second part is fear. Every single time that we embark on this journey, we embark, we know, and we are scared that we're not going to be able to pull it off, right? Fear is part of the journey, but that's a driving force. And, and what we always say here is that if you're scared, if you feel like you're over your skis, if you feel like you're not the one qualified to do it, and there's so many more people in the world who are, are better than you that could do it, and you have that, that fraud syndrome where you feel like I'm not the one that's supposed to be able to do this, there's other people, you're in exactly the right place, exactly the right place. Because when you channel that as a driving force of like to, to say, this has to be done, and I'm going to now assemble other people and other minds and other thoughts and other opinions to try to propel this forward, there's a huge power in channeling that fear into action. And that's something that we do, we have to do all the time because we're as you said earlier, and as I will affirm, we are never the most qualified people to tackle the things that we tackle. Yeah, yeah that's, that's beautiful. I um, remember hearing, I, I forget who it was from, but something about how uh, courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is the commitment to act despite the fear, you know, or, or I think you're calling it courage is the capacity to channel the fear into some purposeful action, isn't it? Uh, that's, that's, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. Mick, in that quest towards finding success in the wake of what may be several failures along the way, there's another quote from you that I, I want to read to us. You know, you said, I believe in that saying, and this is your quote, right? That the harder you work, the luckier you get. We work really, really, really hard. And I think that because of that, and because we stay focused on our values and our ideals, this is key, folks, to what, what Mick is saying here. Because we stay focused on our values and our ideals and the objective that we are trying to accomplish, great things keep happening to us. And so, um, you know, I have a question there for you. This is something that I'm drawn to investigating more in my own research and putting out there in my own sort of leadership, you know, teaching. Do you believe that there is something in the laws of nature that are out there, right? Where if you're doing things with a good heart in the service of humanity and you're striving and tuning in and kind of doing your best, that somehow conditions in the universe conspire to then support you at the right time with the right breakthroughs in a way that couldn't be maybe predicted or rationally arrived at, but 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 something happens. And and do you do you believe in like a higher power behind all of this? I absolutely believe in that. And I don't think that there is any denying the fact that the harder you work, the more you put yourself out there, the more you earnest, the more earnest and, and well-intentioned and, and driven you are, you know, borderline maniacal on trying to solve one of the things that you're, you know, the absurdities you're trying to absolve, that it, it, it just, there's a movement, there's a power, there's a momentum, there's a magnitude that kind of drives you forward. And that goes back to that whole thing I was talking about earlier is this melding, this world of, of being goal-driven and, and also allowing the world to happen at the same time. I just feel like that that is once we once we really grasp the fact that our purpose in life is to drive and to push forward and to try to to create a better world that when you try to do that that the the, the universe responds the world responds you can believe in a higher power or not it doesn't matter but there's just this, this, this propulsion that takes place. And my dad used to tell us every year, 
my dad would and my mom and uh, my brother and I would go on the same vacation growing up, the same vacation. And that might sound boring to some people, but for us, it was it was brilliant, right? There was this comfort and this regularity that we really enjoyed, but we would always go camping and we had a trailer and we would go to the same campsite every single year. And every time we would get ready to pack up after we would stay, we'd usually go for about two weeks. And at the end of that two weeks, um, my dad would have us pick up the campsite. But I mean, meticulously pick up the trash in the campsite. Now, none of that trash was ours because we would keep using the trash bag the whole time we were there. But we would go through, and then he'd make us go to the surrounding campsites and pick up the trash there. And it used to piss my brother and I off because we're like, this is, we don't even smoke and we're picking up cigarette butts from from the campsite. Why are we doing this? And his whole approach was if everybody left the campsite cleaner than when they found it, then the entire campground would be an amazing place. And that's kind of our theory on the world at Not Impossible. And my theory is that if everybody left the world just a little bit better than when they found it, wouldn't that equal out to the world being left in a much better place? And so that's, that, that is for us, it really embodies a, another component of how we think at Not Impossible. Ah, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. It comes so close to the story I heard about Abraham Lincoln, where he was once consumed with depression at the passing of somebody he loved, and he was engaged to marry her, and then she died, and he was besides himself in grief. And then what made him recover from that was kind of like this very realization that he said, like, I cannot die without first uh, doing something to make make my people, make my country better than what it is. Uh, so what a powerful idea. What a simple but powerful idea. Make, there's a quote I want, to, I want to just kind of read to you to bring us to like the closing, you know, a couple of last questions. And this is a quote from uh, someone I, you know, have deep respect for. He was the spiritual master of my, you know, my, my spiritual master, Yogananda. His name is Sri Yukteswar. And he said something like, he said, wisdom is not assimilated with the eyes, but with the atoms. When your conviction of a truth is not merely in your brain, but in your being, then you may vouch for its meaning. And I think that's what you brought to us, you know, is a tremendous um, sense of conviction about these powerful beliefs that uh, you have not just necessarily espoused and put out there, but you have deeply practiced in your DNA. And I'm curious, you've kind of given us a glimpse perhaps into it a little bit, but that beautiful story about your parenting, the experience that you had in growing up and what your father asked you all to do, you and your brother. What has shaped Mick? From where have you drawn these convictions? Uh, what were the most formative forces in your life? Well, I mentioned them, my, my parents, right? I think that you can't refute the, the influence that, that people have as you are kind of progressing through life as, as a child. And back to that whole example of, of being naive as a child, uh, you, you believe that anything is possible. And then as you grow older, you're ground down with experiences or failures that you interpret as, as failure. You kind of get ground down. All of our edges come down. Um, one of the statistics that I think is, is so, so revealing is that as a toddler, a toddler can hear the word no 200 to 300 times a day. Think about that. Think about if if there was something that you heard that many times a day. Now, given the fact that when the toddler picks up a knife, the mom goes, no, 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 no. So you get 10 of those 200 right off the bat. But, but you were ground down as adults. <clears throat> and I think that if there are people who play roles or there are things you read or study or watch that inform you and give you kind of all of a sudden sharpen those edges a little bit or take off 
they take you out of that rut of thinking the way that that's the world has to work. I think that's what's really important. And so my dad was, my dad and my mom were both really important in that. And I went to a Jesuit high school in Phoenix, Arizona, and there were some, some key people there who played a role in our life, in my life. But I think that there's also Muhammad Ali played a role in my life. And I never met Muhammad Ali until the, till the very, till the very end of his life, but studying him and what he overcame, um, the stories of other people, you can draw those. That's why story is so powerful is that you can draw inspiration on, on and other people can be role models and influence your life, whether you know them or not. And I think, you know, your, your spiritual leader, I love, I love that quote about the atoms being so important and so critical in terms of, of who you are as a person. And there are, there's a quote by uh, St. Francis of Assisi that I learned this quote from Dr. Tom when I was in Sudan. And Dr. Tom is the epitome of this. And that quote is preach always use words as little as possible. <laughs> that's beautiful. Right. And, and I think that's, that is really kind of our quest as humans here is your actions speak so loudly, the words become meaningless of what you say. And if we constantly exhibit a desire in our life and actions in our life that point to that desire of trying to help other people, to trying to solve problems, but not just talking about it. The world is full of pundits and 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 social media is rife with people who can comment but not do. The world needs more doers, is people who are out there actually doing the stuff. And uh, I, to me, I take inspiration uh, from those people that do it. I take inspiration from the people and the non-impossible awards that we celebrate. I take inspiration from the people who are, are putting themselves out there. And um, I mean, really, at the end of your life, if you look back, I always, I always kind of go back to when I'm on my porch and I'm rocking back and forth and my teeth are in a jar and a cup next to me. And I'm thinking back on my life. Do you think about the things that you wish you would have done? Or do you think about the things that you've done? So you might as well have given it a shot. To, just to just to have attempted to do some things in your life, be it from jumping out of an airplane and doing something fantastic and and adrenaline ridden to to trying to to feed someone or help someone that that to me is is how a life is, is supposed to be led and and how if you think of yourself in that retroactive form or the retroactive POV when you look back at your life, then that that kind of writes the story that you want to be yeah. your life. Yeah. Mick, we're running out of time on what is otherwise such a rich um, journey and story here that we I, I'd love to unpack more of with you. Uh, perhaps uh, before I turn the audience to a couple of references we can give them on where they can go to learn more about your work. Um, you could end sure. maybe with this um, conversation just for a brief moment about, about hunger. You mentioned how you've been very drawn to wanting to kind of like help address that in, in your own best way. And there is this very innovative project that at Not Impossible Labs that you all took on around just kind of like helping the hungry get access to food, which is so beautiful. Uh, perhaps if you could just like close it out with that little kind of story about what, what you've done around hunger. Sure. So everything that we do at Not Impossible is about seeing an absurdity and saying, that's not right. That has to change. Let's do something about it. And so what we did is over the course of time, probably our whole life, we, we, we would just this concept of food insecurity and hunger was just, it was like a rock in our shoe. And finally, a couple of years back, we said, all right, we, we have to do something about this. this. This concept that there's plenty of food in the world, but people are still going hungry, and especially, you know, in this country. So we started this journey of just trying to discover, like, what it is, how does it work? Why is this, the, why does this exist? 
And uh, we interviewed a bunch of kids that are at a, a group around the corner from us, literally just around the corner from where I'm, I'm shooting right now, called Safe Place for Youth. And we interviewed them and talked to them. These were kids that were sleeping in their cars that didn't have a consistent form of food or a place to live. And we asked them, you know, what is it that you prize most? Food, clothing, water, shelter. These are the answers that we were expecting. And their answer was this. It was a cell phone. And we thought that that was remarkable, that someone would want to have a cell phone more than food, clothing, water, shelter. And the reason is, is that it's connective tissue. It's, it's a way to communicate with another human being. It's a way to have an opinion. It doesn't know where you slept last night. It doesn't know what kind of clothes you have. It doesn't know what color your skin is or who you pray to, who you sleep with. It's about just an opinion and, it, and, it's, and it's an equalizer. And whether you live in a mansion or whether you sleep in a car, everybody has that commonality and that, that ability to have a voice. So we took that as like a key data point and we crafted a solution that leverages the cell phone as a means by which to feed people. And in its most simplistic form, what we did is we said, what if we were to create a way that the cell phone became the vehicle to being able to get food that's proximate, that's convenient to that person, and that's nutritious, and that does not require any major behavior change. Because one of the things that we believe in at Not Impossible, and that that is a kind of an undermining or a, a, an underpinning in terms of how we think around the solutions we create is this, this concept of frictionless. How can we create a frictionless solution? And so what we did is we created a text-based enterprise software that we deploy on the side of the nonprofit or the community-based organization, the church, the school, the government, the city, the Boys and Girls Club, the YMCA, it doesn't matter. They already have a constituency of people that they know are food insecure. They're able to ingest the phone numbers of those people into, into the software, into the platform. And then that person is then able to text the word hungry at Windows throughout the day. And that starts a, a chatbot that enables them to first say the word hungry, second, enter their address. It prompts them, enter your address, because now we can manually geolocate them. We draw a fence around that person so that we know that that's where they're located. And then we offer them restaurants. We offer them the choice, their choice of restaurants that they might be able to go to. We tie into the restaurant's menus through a partnership we have with Postmates. So we have near infinite number of restaurants that we can point them to. They choose the restaurant and then they choose a healthy meal option. They just choose a meal option. They don't know that it's a healthy meal option because we curate the meal options. They choose the meal option and then that person's able to go into the restaurant, not as Mick, the homeless person, not as <clears throat> Hitendra, the person who's sleeping in his car, but just as Mick, just as Hitendra and they get to walk in with dignity and grab a meal just like everybody else and walk out. So if you look at what, we, what we've created is that the nonprofit or the community-based organization or the government has to do nothing except for ingest phone numbers. That's, that's, so there's no friction there. The restaurant, the restaurant, one of the things we're most proud about, restaurants don't even know they're participating because it comes in just like any other Postmates order. And then the person has to text. There's no downloading of an app. There's no, there's no new behavior that we're asking them to adopt. They just text the way that they would text anyway. As of Friday, we in our pilot markets that we went, because we've been doing this since April when we when we saw what was going on with COVID and we knew that we had to, to get a response out there to the food growing food insecurity. On Friday, we just crossed over a hundred thousand meals all via text message. And so this is something we are so passionate about because we believe that whether it's a hundred thousand or a million or ten million or more. 
it's just an automated system that doesn't, that distributes the supply chain instead of having to go to and make a migration to one place to get fed. Now you have choice. You have near infinite choice of where you can go. You have agency on what you eat, the name of the restaurant, the time, everything. And so we've created this frictionless system that we believe and our mission around not impossible is to and with especially with our hunger initiative is to eliminate food insecurity and it's very it's very very attainable for us so we flashed up a, a thing on the site if you want to know more about it you can go to notimpossible.com slash hunger and i could talk for three more hours about this right now but i will i will pass it back over to you <laughs> it's so joyful to see such richness and possibilities in, in the world through your eyes there's one thing you said which just like struck a deep chord with me deep chord i saw a um, documentary made by actually a dear good friend of mine jan petrie who um, she spent about 10 15 years in serving mother teresa and make making a documentary on her which was very critically acclaimed a beautiful window and glimpse into that incredible saint and, and uh, social former's life and um, the, the, one of the key things i discovered in that film is like her greatness lay not necessarily just as much in just kind of doing that noble and beautiful work for a part of society that we tend to painfully so at times just kind of like just look sideways and away from but in the dignity and in the respect and in the love and the admiration that she infused in, in that work for them that, that they felt that they were doing a favor to those sisters you know the missionaries of charity who, who were doing that work for them and i think it was something that the nobel prize committee actually acknowledged in her work that actually what you have brought to this work is a certain sense of just dignity and nobility and you know in, in, in who you're serving and, and and she she you know yeah anyways i saw that in what you just said that you have designed this so intricately and so thoughtfully that it's not just about like having them get the food but having these brothers and sisters of ours actually be able to operate and you know go in and engage in that experience with, with a sense of dignity and a sense of equality with everybody around. How beautiful, how beautiful, Mick. I'm gonna invite you to make some closing remark for us just as a way to give us a final gift in what has been such a bountiful fair. Uh, and just before you do that though, let me just recognize for all of us here that look, I mean, this is just the tip of the iceberg. There's obviously so much more to Mick's story that can meet our eye today. And so I wanna just encourage you, A, to go to the Not Impossible Labs website so that you can see more of the good work that is happening there, perhaps engage and participate and offer up partnership opportunities for some of the things that Mick and team are doing. And the other is that for a more quick uh, deep dive into Mick's story, his vision, his ideas, I really encourage you to access his book, Not Impossible, The Art and Joy of Doing What Couldn't Be Done. So Mick, final words from you. I, first of all, I've thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. Typically, when I have conversations, we're talking about the mechanics, like the technology around what we're doing. And this was a much more, I think, emotional and, and, uh, and quite frankly, spiritual conversation. So I really, I really appreciate that. Thank you. Uh, and you're a wonderful interviewer. You're a wonderful kind of host. So you're, thank you very much for being so gracious. The number one question that people ask is, you know, how can I get involved? What can I do? And there's two answers on the, on the pragmatic, go to the sites, check things out. If you're passionate about the hunger initiative that we're launching and you want to get involved with that, we're going to be launching a campaign in the months ahead about people donating one meal per month, right? Something very attainable, something very almost, it's almost forgetful, right? It's an expensive cup of coffee. It's about seven bucks a, a meal. If that's something that you feel passionate about and you want to go out and tell your friends about and try to create this momentum around that, by all means, please go do that because we feel like we can really take a, a massive, massive step towards eliminating 
food insecurity, uh, if we just kind of quantify it down into one meal per month. And building on that back to the help one, help many, which really informs uh, so much of how we think. The thing that I would say to everybody here is that if you see something that's absurd, if you see something that just bothers you, that just, just stirs something up inside of you, is just understand that you have the potential to make a change. You have the ability to, to go and do something. We are the absolute epitomes of people who are unqualified to go do it, but for the fact that we say that we have to go do it. So when you see these absurdities and when you're, when you're out there in the world, the question that I would ask you to contemplate for yourself is, is this, is who is your one? Not how do I solve all of hunger? Not do I solve, how do I solve all of these issues? But how do I solve this for one person? Because if we solve it for one person, this is, it's kind of a tongue in cheek example or a tongue in cheek, you know, metaphor. If everybody in the world solved a problem for one person, we've solved those problems, right? They're all solved. So ask yourself the question, who is your one? And given the story that I showed you earlier, another way to say it would be, who is your Daniel? Who is your Daniel? So thank you guys very much. Tendra, thank you for inviting me. I really, really enjoyed the conversation. Nick, um, I'm reminded of a, a quote from Rumi. Are, are you familiar with Rumi at all? I'm not. Rumi is actually one of the most uh, well-appreciated uh, poets in modern times, uh, although he himself didn't live in modern times. He was a um, mystic from the Sufi traditions, the more devotional forms of Islam. And so he has a quote, which is coming to my mind right now as I experience this uh, privilege of having this conversation with you and drawing out some of your life for our audience, which is, he said, he said, you're not a drop in the ocean. You are the whole ocean in a drop. And that is how I feel about you and your team and uh, the beautiful things that you're putting out there, that you have shown that you are the whole ocean in a drop. But actually, what you're also doing is you're helping us all feel like that's who I am, too. <laughs> I have this ocean of possibilities of what it is that I can manifest to go on my own hero's journey. So, so thank you so much for all, all the noble and beautiful things you're doing, but also in particular to helping all of us feel that this is, this is an invitation that life is giving, giving us as well. And I'm so grateful. This has been such a moving moment. Thank you. Thank you. I really enjoyed today. Thanks for inviting me. And, and I love that. I'm, I'm, I'm definitely going to keep that quote top of mind. Yeah, yeah. And, and all the best and all that you keep doing in, in, in this beautiful, luminous life path that you're on. All right, my friends, uh, thank you as well for joining us today. It's been uh, such a rewarding journey, isn't it? Take care. Godspeed. Godspeed.